Well, as you may have noticed, I'm not wearing a jacket. My shirt is untucked. And I want everyone to take their bulletin, lift it up in the air, look the wonderful notes that you have. Set them down. I'm off script today. Let's go. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah, um, I'm not talking about Gideon this morning. I'm going to talk to you about a different guy. A guy that doesn't actually say anything in Scripture, but is mentioned 12 times. Now, if I was a pastor or something, I might try and draw some significance to the number 12 and how there are 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, all that wonderful stuff. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I also just did, so. <laughs> I'm a professional. Uh, pray for me. I've never done this before. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about Zebedee, the father of James and John. Jesus uh, name for them was uh, Sons of Thunder. A lot of people think that that was because uh, their mom was a little feisty. You remember, she went to Jesus and tried to say like, hey, I know James and John are going to be like sitting close to you. Can I, can I sit between them? You know, they've got all these like little tiny thrones next to the throne of God. And she's like, but can I join, you know? And I love that. I love it. She, she, she was an awesome lady, and, and Zebedee was an awesome father. And, and how do we know that? Well, sometimes it's hard to define something without first contrasting it. So I said I'm going to talk to you about Zebedee, but we're actually going to spend most of our time talking about three other folks that kind of missed it, three folks who kind of messed up. Missed an opportunity, an opportunity that Zebedee's sons, James and John, didn't miss. And I contend that the reason that James and John didn't miss that opportunity was because of how they were raised. Whereas the three young men that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, they kind of messed up. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, it's a very long chapter, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're actually going to start in verse 57. It's really long. But I want to just read the first two verses for us. And as they were going on the road, meaning Jesus and his camaraderie, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes. The birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to rest his head. And then, that's it. If you keep reading, it's a different person. That is the entirety of this person's encounter with Christ. In, in, the, in the Bible, when, when you look at this passage, uh, there's what us highfalutin theologians call a pericope heading. It's supposed to help us understand the topic of what's going on. Depending on your translation, it might say, the, the cost of following Jesus or exacting discipleship. I like how my Bible translates it. They say, the cost of discipleship. Some of you might know a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer by the same name. This morning, I want to talk to you about the cost of discipleship. I want to talk to you about counting the cost of what it means to really follow Jesus and what we can expect and there's three principles that I'm going to teach you. The first one we get from this guy. 
And in order to really dive into that, I have to explain something culturally. You see, Jesus having disciples wasn't unusual. That was common. People who were expert carpenters or blacksmiths, they would have people that would follow them around and and learn from them, but there was an expectation. If they were going to learn from this person full-time, well, they couldn't also have a job on top of that. So the blacksmith or the carpenter or whoever it was was expected to do a few things. Give them a place to stay. Put food on the table. Provide for their needs. And so this man approaches Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. The enthusiasm. It's great. So how did he miss it? The uncommunicated social contract was, I will follow you wherever you go, and what will you do in return for me? And Jesus said, the foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not promising you food, I'm not promising you shelter, all I'm promising is that I'll take your life. That's what happened to the disciples. They didn't make it out alive, guys. By the way, none of us will either. This life is temporary. It's finite. And what we do matters. It echoes into eternity as we learn from the movie Gladiator, which uh, is, as you know, a a Christian movie. (laughs) Oh, I'm really glad you laughed. (laughs) So there were these expectations that the the mentor would provide these things. And by the way, I'm I'm not sponsored by Duncan, but I, I basically run on equal parts Holy Spirit and Duncan Coffee, so... I apologize if I take a break to have a quick uh, drink. Um, But again, our first point based on this right here is that when we follow Jesus, there can be no negotiation. He tells us what he expects of us. He promises what he promises. We get no say in the matter. And if we want to argue for what we want, occasionally he'll give it to us. How many of you have ever gotten what you really wanted and then found out it wasn't the best? I see those hands, all right. Honesty, I love it. Me too, me too. I have, I have wanted some things in my life and I haven't gotten them and I've wanted some things and I've gotten them and uh, let's just say I want less and less as time goes on. But now I wanna go to verse 59. And this one's my favorite, so bear with me as I spend a little bit of extra time on that. So after this guy that teaches us that we can't negotiate, It jumps straight to, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he, meaning Jesus, said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. I have to admit to you, when I first read that as a kid, it disturbed me. I was uncomfortable and, and how many of you know that when you like grow up in the church and, and you're reading things, sometimes as a child, sometimes things stand out to you and it's awesome and you can feel God speak to you. Other times you read something like that and you're like, ooh, you know, and it, it bothered me. For years, I, I carried this, what I'm going to share with you now is a misunderstanding of this passage. I, I, for years, I was like, what the heck, Jesus? Dude just wanted to bury his dad. Why is that such a problem? But you know, as Christians, we, we have 
kind of a, a, a nice thing called prayer where we can actually talk to the dude who wrote the book, you know? And it took me a long time to like actually do that. And then I was like, okay, maybe I should ask Jesus what he meant when he said this. And so I, I, told, I talked to God. I was like, God, why? Why couldn't you let him bury his father? I, I imagine like at that point I was, I was really close to my dad. And I still am. He, he lives with my wife and I. And I would like to imagine that, you know, if Jesus came to me and said, follow me on this evangelistic journey across the United States, that I would, I would be like, yes, Lord, I will follow you. He didn't say, who are you? Get away from me. He said, I will follow you. But imagine my dad had passed away that day. And I said, Lord, give me a couple of hours to bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. I'd be like, come on, what? Where's the compassion that we see in Jesus? Where's, where's the heart and the love? And so I took that to God, and I was like, God, why? And, and like all the best teachers in the world, he answered my question with a question. <laughs> what makes you think that the young man's father was already dead? And I went back and I looked, and no, it didn't say that he was dead. It said that he wanted to put off the call of Christ until he had a chance to bury his father. And I, I suddenly was flooded with images. What if his father was getting old, in failing health? In, in, in Jewish custom, when, when someone in your immediate family dies, you also take a year of mourning. So, so what if he was, like, going to inherit the family business? And he thought, well, my, my father's going to pass away soon, and... I'll get all those affairs in order. And Jesus is a young guy. He's only in his 30s. I got plenty of time to follow Jesus. All the time in the world. He wanted to put off the call to bury his father. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Because suddenly I saw what I do and what so many of us do. We're convinced that there will be a better time, a better opportunity. Maybe, like he did with me, God came to you as a kid. He said, follow me. And I said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But let me be an adult first. I'm just a child. What can I do? And so, he's a gentleman. He leaves. Comes back at 18 years old, follow me. Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first... Let me get a degree at ORU, degree in theology and ministry. Then I'll be better equipped to do what it is that you want me to do. So he leaves four years later. Follow me. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. But let me get married, have a couple of kids, settle down, get a job, have some financial stability. A few years later, he comes back. Follow me. Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but I've got these young kids. Let me put them through high school. Let me put them through college. They graduate high school, they go to college, they graduate college. Follow me, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But let me build up a bit of a nest egg. Let me, let me put away a little bit more savings, let me retire. Then I'll have so much more time to answer the call. And then one day, what do they do? They lower us six feet into the ground having never answered the call that God has for us. The enemy 
procrastination. The enemy, two little words. But first. This guy had all the buts in the world. They're reasonable. He didn't know Jesus was going to die. No one did. Except for Jesus himself and the rest of the Trinity. He thought there would be a better time. What we learn from this guy is that when we follow Christ, there can be no procrastination. No negotiation, point one, point two, no procrastination. The best time to answer the call of God is when he calls you. The second best time is before we leave our service today. Right now. If you're waiting for God to show up until I started talking, you missed it, because he showed up like during the worship. And he showed up before that when there were some ladies praying over here. Whew. God is here. And God lives inside of you. He's calling you every single day. I have a lot of but firsts in my life. There's a lot of times that I put it off. You think I was joking when I said, let me go to ORU and get a degree first? He called me into ministry when I was in high school. And I convinced myself no one would listen to me if I didn't have a college degree. I don't regret going to ORU. I met my wife there. God definitely used it in awesome ways. But I do think I missed some opportunities because I was, I was too scared. I, I, I convinced that I had to qualify myself as if God's call wasn't qualification enough. I don't want anyone here to experience that for one more single day. And if this isn't speaking to you whatsoever, praise God. Think of someone in your life that this would and be praying for them during this message because we ain't done yet. We got a little bit more to go. We got more people to talk about. And see, the reason that this speaks to me so much, what these, these three people, and we'll get to the third one soon, is because in, in my eyes, the greatest tragedy is a wasted life. How many of you were alive in uh, June, uh, let me see, I wrote the date here, 25th, 2009. It's only 12 years ago. <laughs> it was like everybody in here, right? You were all here, okay. All right. That date may not stand out to you, and I'm going to age myself a little bit, and I apologize if I make anyone feel old, but June 25th, 2009 was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. Not college, high school, I know. I'm a youngin, I'm 29, I apologize. It's okay. What did, uh, what did Paul say to Timothy? Don't let people look down on you because of your age. So June 25th, 2009, why does that date stand out to me? Two of, I could say my generation, really they were the, the generation before, more Gen X than anything, but my generation looked up to them a lot. Two icons passed away in the same day. Farrah Fawcett and Michael Jackson, the same day. And, and, and maybe you remember seeing the news that day. Anytime we watch the news and there's some big crazy thing that happens, what do they do? They, they marathon the coverage, right? For like 36 hours straight, even if they don't have anything new to say, they just keep rehashing the same stuff over and over and over again. And you know what I realized is like, in true eternal terms, what did they accomplish? 
So what if Farrah Fawcett won a People's Choice Award? So what if she was a gorgeous like actress and, and people looked up to her and admired her? So what if Michael Jackson was the undisputed king of pop? What difference does it make? In the world's eyes, they were some of the most illustrious people among us. But in eternal terms, their lives hardly mattered at all. And maybe it won't happen like this. In fact, it probably won't. But I want you to imagine for a moment that when you die, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, CNN, they all give you that, that bumper-to-bumper 24-hour news coverage, and they've got to summarize your life into a little news crawl, about 100 words across the bottom of the screen. What are they going to say? What are they going to say? What are they going to say about me? Depends on when they look at my life. I hope they don't look at like my high school and college years. One day, we are going to stand in front of God. Regardless of what that news crawl would say, we're all going to get to heaven. We're all going to stand in front of God. What is he going to say? Can God look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, like he did with David? I don't know. I hope so. I try, but I'm not perfect. I am so far from perfect. Please, God, don't follow me. Follow Jesus, right? But there's, there's one thing that I have resolved myself to do. And that is to not spend my life caring about things that don't matter for eternity. There's so many things we get distracted by. So many things that take our attention. But I, I can guarantee you one thing. There's going to be no one that gets to heaven after living a long life and, and regret wasting it in the service of the king. No one's going to get to heaven wishing they had done less for God, wishing they had done less for his kingdom, wishing they had shared the gospel less. It's always going to happen in reverse. I'm going to tell you my favorite movie, and it's going to shock most of you because I doubt this really makes the, the number one uh, movie list for a lot of people. Schindler's List. I know. It's probably because I'm, I'm part Jew, so it means a lot to me. And if you don't know this story, Oscar Schindler was a German. This is a true story. He was played by Liam Neeson, which is so cool. Spielberg directed it. Oscar Schindler was a German working for the Nazis. He was a businessman. And, and he has these factories and these concentration camps where the Jews are working. And he comes to find out the atrocities that are being committed against them. And he realizes that if the Jews are considered fit enough to work, then they're not being carted off to gas chambers. And so he finds ways to get the old and the young and the, the, the frail... Uh, marked as healthy enough to work, giving them jobs in order to save their life. He, he saves like a thousand Jews doing this to, to the point where the, 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 um, 
the, the children, the grandchildren of these Jews that survived the Holocaust because of him, they call themselves Schindler Jews because they owe their, their entire existence to the faithfulness of this one guy who didn't die in a blaze of glory, but from the inside out did everything he could to save every Jew that he could. And at the very end of that movie, there's a scene as the Jews are being liberated, the Nazis are leaving, and he's standing outside of a camp in a, in a crowd of the Jews that he had saved. Sir Ben Kingsley is there. He, he's also one of the main characters. And Oscar breaks down outside of his car. As he looks at his watch, and he was a businessman, it was a nice watch, and he realizes, I could have saved two Jews if I had just sold this watch. I could have bought them. This car, that's like 30. You will never get to heaven and say, man, I wish I had done less for God. But it'll always happen in reverse. Before we go to the third person, I like to call them the three recruits, we're going we're gonna to jump over and uh, we're going to look at, at Matthew 4 real quick starting in verse 18. Uh, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there and, and just start reading. Uh, the, the pericope heading here is the first disciples. Spoiler. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, everyone say immediately. immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, everyone say immediately. immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately. Wow. Zebedee, what did he do? He raised them up in the way they should go. And when they were old, they didn't depart from it. That's why Zebedee is the hero in this story. He, he didn't go on a gospel crusade. He didn't fund some incredible missions project. He humbly raised his sons. And I'm sure he worried. How many parents in here have never worried about your kids? Exactly. He, he, he didn't know. Until that moment, God had not come up to them and asked them to follow him. This was that moment. They were adults. Say they were maybe in their 20s. Up until that point, Zebedee didn't really know if he had done a good job. He hadn't been tested yet. So I want to encourage you, if you're still waiting on seeing the fruit of what you're doing with your kid, hold on. God's not done with them yet. There's still life to live. Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me. What do they, what do they say? Sure, yeah, let me, let me just finish fixing these nets. Do they say, okay, but... I mean, we're partners with our father's business. Like, give us a little bit of time to, to square things off. They were in the boat with Zebedee. No, it says immediately. 
They left their nets. They left the boat. They left their father. And they followed Jesus immediately. It speaks to me. There's a lot of people who uh, they take their time when they feel like God is, is calling them, they wait. I've done the same thing. I've missed it. I've missed opportunities. You know, God keeps moving. The purposes of God don't wait for me. How blessed am I, though, that, that he has given me an opportunity to join him. That he's, he's stooped down and he's asked me, to be a part of it, and, and he asks you to be a part of it. But I just want to warn you guys. The, the purposes of God will not wait forever. One of the most dangerous places to stand is on the train track of God's purpose as he's roaring towards you, unwilling to join him and unwilling to get out of the way. Because that train's going to hit you. And it might smack you upside the head. It might turn you over and shake the coins out of your pocket. But God will get your attention. Gets my attention. But they didn't, uh, they didn't miss it. Matthew 4, they left immediately. You know, those, those other recruits we were talking about, we don't know anything about them. We don't know their name they could have been disciple number 13 or just one of the 12. They could have had a, a book in the Bible. But now all we know about them is about their epic missed opportunity. You know, when there's an altar call and we're, we're asking people, come up if you want prayer, there's that little voice in your head that says, I don't. Don't worry about it. You don't need to pray right now. Just wait till you get home. Or just, just wait for the drive home. Put on some worship music and just praise God in the car. You don't need to, to come up to the front right now. You don't need to, to pray to God right now. You can, or just better yet, do it tomorrow. You're tired. Get some sleep. Take a nap. And tomorrow morning, talk to God. You know why that voice gets in there? Because the devil knows something that we all too often forget. Tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow never comes, guys. I have a friend who's an evangelist, and uh, he, he lived this out uh, very real in his life. When uh, Pretty much right after their little crusade they were doing, there was a terrible accident. And a bus full of people that were just at the crusade got into like a, a rollover accident and about half the people on board died. I could be gone in 15 minutes from right now. That's what June 25th, 2009 reminds me of. I was glued to the TV because I was reminded of my mortality. 
I know this is heavy, guys. This might be the most important thing I have ever shared with you, so I hope you're listening. We have one more recruit to look at. We go back to uh, our passage in, in Luke chapter 9 here. Give me a second while I, uh, I say turn to it, but while I tap a bunch of buttons on my phone and then scroll, I'm sure, yeah, they got there before I did. <laughs> Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at my home but Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. How many of you have ever been a farmer that's plowed a field? Wow, we actually got some hands. I was not expecting that. Okay, so for those of you who have, you, you understand what I'm about to say. But for those of you who haven't, you need to know that when you're plowing a field, you have to be extremely focused on what you're doing. You can't let that plow drift left or right, or it messes up the lines and it ruins the whole thing. Everything about what you're doing, you have to be completely focused on those lines and on putting that plow through the field. So, so what is Jesus saying here? You can't be torn between two things. He was saying, follow me, and he was like, yes, I will, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. He was talking, you can't be double-minded can't be double focused you can't be distracted if you're going to follow Jesus you have to follow him with everything no one having put their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God so our first point uh, when we follow Christ there can be no negotiation our second point there can be no procrastination our last point there can be no hesitation when we follow Christ how many of you uh know um, that uh, verse in the Bible that says, today is the day of salvation? It's a trick question. The Bible doesn't say that. Theologians. You know what it says? It says, now is the time of salvation. To say today is the day is not urgent enough. My friends, if someone is drowning, they don't need to be saved sometime today. They need to be saved right now. Right now. Maybe you're distracted right now. Maybe you're thinking about lunch. Or maybe you're thinking, why is this youth pastor yelling at me? <laughs> I'm yelling at myself, guys. This is my 12th year of ministry, and I still struggle with this. That's why I'm telling you. Because I know what this is like to go through this. I know what it's like to have amazing days where I feel like I'm on fire for God and everything is going great. And then the very next day, I'm just like, what am I doing? And everything just doesn't make sense. That's normal. And I want you to know that's normal. Coming from a pastor on a stage with a microphone, it's normal. And it's okay. God gets it. So what do we do? We try again. We try again. We try again. We try again. You know, the nice thing is, though, we don't try alone. Very first sermon I ever got a chance to preach to you guys, I talked about the indwelling Christ. I had the opportunity to talk to you about how Jesus lives inside of us and how Scripture tells us that the hope of glory is not forgiveness of sins, but Christ in us. That also means every time we have to try again, 
Guess who's trying with us? Jesus. I'm going to share a story with you, and then I'm going to let you go. This is a a story I've used in in evangelism before. It's uh, especially useful to to people who um, have meager lives, by American standards anyway. It's a story of a guy who lives in a mansion. And the mansion is pretty good. He's got 10 rooms. That's pretty great. I got like two. But he's got 10 rooms, five upstairs, five downstairs. He lives in like this secluded area in a forest. It's, it's a gorgeous mansion, really. And one day, there's a knock at his door. He has a glass door, apparently. And he goes and he opens the door, and, and wouldn't you know who's there? Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I know you. Come on in. So Jesus comes in, he says, oh, and Jesus is traveling, and he's like, oh, you can stay here for sure. Here, uh, you can take one of the rooms upstairs. So Jesus is like, oh, that's very generous of you. Thank you. And so Jesus goes upstairs to his room, and then he goes to bed that night. Around 2, 3 in the morning, there's another knock at the door. Not a, a gentle knock, but more of like a, did that sound worse than the first one? Because it was. So he's like, he's awoken from his sleep. It's the middle of the night. He's like, who could pot? Like, here's the thing. Someone knocking on your door at 2 a.m., never a good thing. Never a good thing, right? And so he's nervous, and he comes up to the door, and, and he, he nervously kind of cracks the door open a little bit, and he looks, and you guys know who was outside this time? It was the devil. And, and as soon as he cracked the door a little bit, the devil just got a little pinky toe in the door. You know, if you give the devil a pinky toe, he'll take a shoulder, and pretty soon he's going to bust that door open. And that's what happened. And he wrestles with this guy all night, the, the Satan pouring temptation over him, tormenting him, just, just the, wrecking everything downstairs in this, this fight. And then the sun comes up, Satan gets up, straightens his clothes, hops out the door. And the man is exhausted. He's been awake all night fighting the devil. He, he goes to the kitchen, he gets some coffee probably Duncan. And then who comes downstairs, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Jesus. And the guy's like, Jesus, where were you? I was fighting Satan all night. And Jesus goes, oh, sir, this is, this is your house. I just have one room, and I don't want to impose. And, and he goes, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All right, let's, let's split this 50-50. All right? You get all the rooms upstairs, I'll take all the rooms downstairs. Jesus is a gentleman. Thank you very much, sir. I'll take what you give me. So they have the rest of their day. They go to bed that night. Jesus goes to bed. The man goes to bed, but he's lying awake, worried, until suddenly around 2 or 3 in the morning, there's a knock at the door. And he hadn't slept yet because he was so nervous about what was going to happen. So he he gets to the living room, and he's walking slowly towards the door. He, he doesn't want to open it, but he can't stop himself. And, and he goes, and he cracks the door just a little bit. You guys, do you know who's there? It was the devil. Shocker. He comes by more than once. And, and again, he, he opens the door. Devil slams it open. And they fight again. The devil is pouring temptations over him and tormenting him for the entire night. Until the sun comes up, stands up, straightens his clothing, heads out the door. 
The man goes to the kitchen, doesn't make coffee this time. He's exhausted and, and can't really think straight. Jesus comes down, and this time the guy is angry, furious. I gave you half of this house. Why aren't you helping me? What does Jesus say? Sir, this is 50-50. You're, you're the guy here. You're the man of the house. And the man says, you're right. I'm sorry. Look, you take nine of the rooms. We're all groaning now because we've, we've thought ahead to the, the end of the story, right? But this guy, in the midst of it, he says, just don't take the master bedroom. There's some things there I'm not proud of. There's some things in my closet that I don't want you to see. How many of us do that? We give God almost everything. You guys know that song, I Surrender All? Most? Jesus is a gentleman. Thank you very much. He goes to bed for the night. And this time the, the, the young man is, is pacing in his house downstairs and, and he can't sleep. And then he can't help but to hear around two or three in the morning yet another at the door. He knows who it is, and y'all know who it is, the devil. But he can't stop himself as he takes step after step, sweating, knowing what's about to happen. He goes to open the door and the devil kicks it open. Every single time, more temptation, more torment, more pain. And the next morning, when Satan leaves and Jesus comes downstairs, Bruce, you can come up. The young man doesn't even have the energy to fight God anymore. You know, the interesting thing is God doesn't want us to fight him in the first place. We're not supposed to fight God. We're supposed to surrender to him. And that's what this guy realizes when he says, Jesus, why didn't you save me? And Jesus says, it's true. You've given me nine rooms, but you're still the man of this house. The deed is in your name. And as long as you're the owner, you must be the defender and you must be the protector. The man says, you're right. Reaches into his pocket, pulls out the keys to the house, hands them to Jesus. I don't want it anymore. Take it. Jesus takes the keys. You're very generous. Thank you. He goes to bed that night. The man is pacing around two or three in the morning. Anyone know who it is? It's Pizza Hut. No. (laughs) It was the devil. And the man is slowly taking a step after a step, he doesn't want to open the door, but he can't stop himself. He's shaking and trembling. Sweat is pouring down his head already in anticipation of what he's about to experience. As he reaches his hand for the doorknob, he feels a tap on his shoulder. And he turns around, and who's there? Shining like the sun. And he says, excuse me, sir. I believe this is my house, and I will open my own door. And he pushes that guy out of the way. And Jesus isn't shy. He isn't full of trepidation. So when he gets to the door, what does he do? He flings that door open. You know who's standing there? It's the devil. That's right. You guys are learning. The devil, seeing the door open, notices Jesus. 
He gets kind of confused, scratches one of his horns. He takes a step back, he looks at the number on the house, and he looks at Jesus, and he looks at the number, and he looks at Jesus, the number, Jesus, the number, Jesus, and, and there's this moment of realization that comes across his face. He takes a few steps back, he gets down on a knee. Do you know what he says? I'm sorry, sir. I seem to have come to the wrong house. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You want to know what the cost of discipleship is, friends? Everything. He wants it all. But if you follow him, it's going to be the best life you could ever live. It's not free of pain. It's not free of suffering. We were promised that we're going to have trials, but we also have the one who overcame all of those trials with us. Amen? You're not alone. There's many dangers, toils, and snares on this road. Several years ago, I was sitting, not literally where you are, but in a church like you are, and I heard something very similar being preached to me, and it wrecked my life. I was distraught. I had realized that I bought into this American dream and that was my pursuit instead of giving everything up in the pursuit of my savior. Changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I I haven't figured everything out. Like I said, I'm not perfect. I'd say ask my wife, but she's in another state. So (laughs) you can't. guys to hear me. I don't have it all figured out. But I know the one who has. And he lives inside of me. And he lives inside of you. And this morning, if you believe that God is calling you to anything, if you believe that he has spoken anything to you, decision you ever made I promise you and you won't be alone no matter what let's pray Lord we thank you this morning that you are with us we thank you that you are in us and we thank you that we had the opportunity to get to know you to read your word and when we have questions to to ask you as the author pray for everyone who is here right now in person, watching online, or watching at some point in the future. Help us to answer your call when you call us. Help us to chase after you. Give us boldness to stand up and immediately follow you, to leave our nets, our boats, and our parents for whatever it is that you have called us to do. I specifically pray for for anyone in here who feels like they've been given direction from you. Help them to stand. Help them to trust you and lean into that and to seize the opportunity of a lifetime. I love you, Lord. We trust you. You are a good God. Amen. Would you stand? So we get ready to dismiss. Thank <laughs> you.
you guys leave and go to lunch. Talk about God. Just a little bit. Bring him into every conversation in your life. You'll never be sad that you do that. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of his great mercy. Be all might and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.